2: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: The way we build our cities creates more long-term liability, long-term promises, than it creates wealth and capacity to actually sustain that. And so at a a fundamental level, a strong town is a city that can pay to fix its own streets and maintain its own sewer system and provide clean water for people and do like the basic things that we expect government to do.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: We are also joined today by Chuck Marone, the president and founder of Strong Towns, a nonprofit advocating for cities of all sizes to be safe, livable, and inviting, which sounds pretty good. Chuck is an engineer and a land use planner and the author of Strong Towns, a bottom-up revolution to rebuild American prosperity, and Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. Chuck also hosts the Strong Towns Podcast. Chuck, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the connection between having more human work and more human cities, which is very exciting for us as fans of complex adaptive systems. But before we unpack all that, let's do a complex check-in round.
1: Hopefully it won't be too complex. Hopefully... (laughs) A simple simple check in round, then. So, we'll begin this episode like every episode with a check in round. And our question for today is if you were to perform in the circus, what would you do? I'm going to go Aaron, then Chuck, then me. What would you do in the circus?
2: Ooh, I'm going to go flying trapeze. What? Yeah. Wow. uh, With the greatest of ease. Yeah, that's what it's the Shell Silverstein poem. That's what I'm doing. Okay. Yeah, I think it sounds exciting. As long as I can like practice enough to not feel you know inadequate, and there's a net, it seems like what a what a what a lovely thing.
0: This is gonna sound. This is gonna be like a really bad way to start this podcast because I'm gonna come across as like really narcissistic. But I think I would be the ringleader. I mean, I I, I'm kind of like. I'm not gonna have any of those specialty skills that people would need to do all the really important stuff. Mm-hmm. But I could be like the bobo who stands in the middle and is like, now the, the trapeze and now the guy who sticks his head in the lion. And I could do I could do that fairly well, I think.
1: We'll just get you a top hat. <laughs> I think
2: mean, yeah. you missed a very, a very key opportunity, Chuck, to say strong man.
0: <laughs> that I would definitely not not be. <laughs> I mean, unless Beyond it truly random. is, yeah, unless it truly is like fake weights, you know, then I can, <laughs> then I can do that.
2: The styrofoam painted yeah. black. Oh, I I am,
0: uh, I'm not known for my physical prowess, let's say.
1: <laughs> when I was young, I loved going to the circus and I always wanted to be the woman who worked with the horses. You know, wow. there were there you back in the day. This is there's probably like a lot of animal cruelty in this and other things I don't know about. But back in the day, there was a woman who had like 10 beautiful white horses, and those horses did things synchronous. the headdresses. Like, um, yeah. And like it was like synchronous swimming, but for horses, n- not in the water. Anyway, you know what I mean. I want to be that lady, because I've always loved horses and I always thought that would be really fun. Yes. That's
0: that's awesome. I, that that's a great vision.
1: <laughs> awesome. So Today's topic is how the future of work connects to the future of cities. And we'd like to start by asking you, Chuck, give us some background on what Strong Towns is and what your nonprofit does.
0: It's a really great question. And it's it's interesting because from a technical standpoint, we just adopted a, a new strategic plan. So we, we've been operating under the idea that we were building a movement for change. Mm-hmm. I started writing a blog back in 2008. And Just talking about why cities were going broke and what I had experienced as an engineer and a planner. Those ideas started to get passed around. They started to be discussed. More and more people started to read it. Uh, In 2015, we adopted the strategic plan to say, okay, let's take these ideas, which seem very powerful, refine them, get them out there, get more people talking about it, and build a movement for change around it. We sat back at the beginning of the pandemic and said, we've been really successful at that we have all these local groups that have spawned up just you know spontaneously we have lots of people implementing strong towns ideas and the question we've asked now is how do we accelerate that and so yeah our new strategic plan focuses on a few key areas but we still use media predominantly so writing written columns podcasting video lots of social media work we've got some online courses really just to share new and exciting ideas about how we build cities. And then we're starting to support people on the ground who are making those changes, connecting them to resources, connecting them to people, that kind of stuff.
2: Nice. So Strongtown is, is kind of a a branded term here, but what does it actually look (laughs) and feel like? What is, how does it organize itself? You know, what does that, what does the strength really mean? Is there a political angle to this? Like break it down for us.
0: Yeah, in terms of a, a city, like say we, we want to be a strong town. You're really talking about fundamentally a place that can sustain its own systems, right? I mean that that was the very first insight that I had that I I, I kind of shocked me was that the way we build our cities creates more long-term liability, long-term promises then it creates wealth and capacity to actually sustain that. And so at a a fundamental level, a strong town is a city that can pay to fix its own streets and maintain its own sewer system and provide clean water for people and do like the basic things that we expect government to do. I think you can layer over top of that some mechanisms of how we accomplish that that require us to rethink government and rethink how we interact with each other and and rethink what a neighborhood looks like. But at its fundamental level, it's a place that will endure over time without needing a rescue remedy from outside the community.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And, and it's cool to just, you know, we'll get into our work <laughs> in terms of companies, but there's so much overlap here in terms of, The work that we do trying to help big systems become more adaptive and less fragile. I feel like what I'm hearing in your description is creating cities that like aren't fragile, that are like anti-fragile and that are more resilient. If that, if that lands with you, how do you think our communities have become more fragile or less resilient? And like, how does industry factor into that history if you think
0: it does? it does in a big way. So the term antifragile is such a fascinating one because I've read every I've read every book that Nassim Taleb has written. Nice. And really <laughs> Nassim Taleb got me when I was asking questions I had no answers for. Nassim Taleb was the first one that filled in those gaps for me and really got me thinking about this in in this way because What I was doing as an engineer and what I was doing as a planner was facilitating a pattern of growth and development. And the end goal there was growth Mm -hmm. because cities that grow are, you know, quote unquote, better off than cities Mm -hmm. that are not growing. And that's like a fundamental law of the American development pattern is if your city is growing, you're in a better position than if your city is not growing. Uh And I struggled with that because that is – not a strong, resilient pattern. I mean, it, it's it's a little like saying the world is great every day, the sun is shining. But if the sun's not shining, everything goes to hell, you know. And it's like you can't run a system that way because sometimes your city won't grow, and yeah. sometimes the sun won't shine. And so, how do we get ourselves into this position? You use the word industrial. I think it's important to recognize that after World War II, the mission of our, our macro economy really as manifested from the federal government down to this now new way of looking at cities as an implementation arm of federal policy was mm-hmm. to grow the economy and keep us out of the Great Depression.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We turn cities into machines of growth. I, I call it a kinetic growth machine where we pump in from the federal level, from the state level, we pump in subsidies for highways and roadways and infrastructure. We pump in subsidies for building homes. We create a system to financialize the building of commercial real estate. And we do all this in order to achieve and experience growth in our economy. If your city is really easy to grow now. I mean, you you can get The money that you need to put infrastructure and stuff in place, and you can subsidize people to come in, and you can attract all kinds of growth, and you can grow, grow, grow. The problem is, and we see it increasingly now today, is that each of those transactions involves a short-term gain and a long-term promise or liability. Mm -hmm. We now live in the long term of the people who, you know, Mm -hmm. after World War II started building this and we're overwhelmed with liabilities. We're overwhelmed with roads to fix and pipes to repair and systems to maintain. And none of it is very productive. None of it actually creates enough wealth and capacity and and financial wherewithal to maintain itself. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting, the parallels here, because, you know, if you look at natural systems, regenerative systems growth, unchecked growth that never stops is almost always toxic to the system and is usually checked by something. The same is true with companies, that expectation that you talked about, that sort of drumbeat of grow forever. I, you know, I constantly marvel at the analysts covering Apple, a two or three trillion dollar company being like, where's the growth going to come from, fellas? And it's like, "How? when does this stop when it's 100 trillion, when it's the only company on earth? how can that be the ideology that underlies all of these systems? And it's, it's reminding me of friend of the show, Douglas Rushkoff talks a lot about the circulation of money and how if you can keep money moving in a community, $1 can be spent 15 times. But if you put a Walmart in that community and it takes that dollar out, that's, it gets spent one time essentially. And there's just no, there are no feedback loops of prosperity in these systems. So I'm curious, how have you in working with with towns or talking to people that are in this space, how have you been able to get people to shift their mindset about that growth addiction?
0: That's a really difficult concept, and it's really difficult because you wind up in this space where you need the growth, right? Right. I think like the drug addiction analogy is just way too lazy and easy, <laughs> but it's almost like it's used so often because it's easy to relate to. When you set up your systems where you literally can't pay your budget next year unless you experience more growth, the idea of transitioning to a system that is less dependent on growth or doesn't need growth or or can sustain a decade where things just kind of hang out in stasis, Yeah, that's, that's really, not really an option. Yeah, that's really hard to do. You also have this problem in in cities, which is the businesses that we interact with in our communities also are part of this growth machine, right? They're also part of this system. So if I have the local hardware store that's owned by the longtime local hardware store owner in the community, and that person you know, makes a certain amount of profit every year, they are generally fine with that level of profit, right? Mm-hmm. They can pay their mortgage and they can live their life. And as long as inflation isn't crazy like it is now, you know, as, as long as things are kind of stable, They're fine with that. But if you bring the Walmart to town or the, the Home Depot or whatever, they have to actually increase their profit margins every year because they have debt, they have shareholders, they have what have you. And it creates a different relationship, right? It creates a relationship that evolves, whether intentional or not, into becoming parasitic on that community. And so when we look at the mix of the stresses within city hall to manage the budget next year. And then we also recognize that cities are entities that serve people in the community. And those people in the community all own businesses or are plugged into machines that themselves need to grow at an exponential pace. You realize that it's very hard to break free from that system. It's very, very hard to step back and say, we're not, you know, we're, we're going to forego growth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part where we've struggled the most, because it is almost like the number one ideology we have in our economic system is that everything must grow. Mm -hmm. And so what we've tried to do is is create niches within that. And the, the way we describe it, and we're going to sound like Doomer right off the bat here, I always tell our members and our people who are out there working, like, we're not going to fix everything. We're going to be here when everything else breaks. And people are looking for an alternative. Mm-hmm. And so go out and create models and systems that work at a small scale, at a neighborhood scale, that can someday be copied and mimicked by others when when they need it. Mm-hmm. That's totally. so
1: interesting. I feel like we have a very similar approach. Like In very large companies, what we are often doing is finding a domain or a place that's protected enough to work and being like, can we have enough protection, space, budget, et cetera, to really like fuck some stuff up here in a good way. And then when you see how this is working and the rest of the org is sort of peeking over the fence going like, huh, why do they seem like faster, less miserable, more experimental, (laughs) more innovative, more engaged, et cetera, et cetera. There's something to draw from that's like, oh yeah, on this small scale, this thing works and it can work for you too. But yeah, we also do not take the tact of like, let's transform the whole city at one time because we know the ways in which that kind of
0: falls apart. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And actually we see planners. I I mean, I went back to graduate school and got a planning degree. Mm. There's nobody who does that, who doesn't think that they're someday going to build an entire city on their own, right? Really? They all play, oh, everybody played SimCity and everybody's like, I can do this perfectly and (laughs) nobody else can. And it's such a it's such a hubris, right? Yeah. Like not understanding how these systems work. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna admit to you right now that when I was in grad school, oh yeah, I'm like, you know, I studied Brasilia and the the modern new, like, let's go out and build a city from scratch because it won't be screwed up like mm-hmm. everything else. Totally. And there is that embedded hubris within the city building professions. I mean, you see this recently with sidewalk labs, you know, this idea in Toronto that they were gonna take this part of the city, and then come in and make it like tech utopia. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's another one being built somewhere in Nevada now today where they're going to do a similar thing. You know, We're going to create a new city from scratch. And there's a long history of that type of hubris working out really, really poorly. There's a, an equally long history of cities starting at humble places, building incrementally over time, with these complex internal feedback loops, creating places, creating Paris, you know, creating uh, Rome, creating New York, really. I mean, places that have endured and been successful for long, long periods of time.
1: So just because you brought up your graduate education, I do want to just (laughs) ask a little bit about your background. You have referred to yourself as a recovering engineer. Obviously, you're also a planner by training. What sort of pivoted you out of that track? Did you have like a moment of epiphany or what led you here from that training and background?
0: It's a good question. People ask me for like the epiphany moment. Mm. And it, it was really never that. It was a series of what my expectations were going in being unfulfilled. I'll give you one example about this. And I I wrote about this one in in my first book because I was part of a study to run. We were going to run a highway around the city, bypass it, a little town, or we were going to widen it through the middle of the city. And this was one of those, you're either 100% here or 100% there. And it was like, everyone's going to fight about it. Okay. And so I was the outside consultant who was going to help them discern this. And I was going to be dispassionate about it, and I came in and I helped them set up this study because one of the things they wanted to look at was the economics of it right how much will we invest in each scenario and what is the upside potential of our development pattern in each one and I had you know I was very confident in in my profession I was very confident I knew what I was doing and when I set this study up, I knew that the bypass the route around the city was going to be the, the preferred option I knew that was one that was going to work out economically the best. Mm -hmm. And I set this study up and we had data come in from all these like unimpeachable sources and we assembled it and put it together. And lo and behold, not only was the bypass not the best option, but every single option we evaluated, the city lost enormous amounts of money on. Like every single one was a financial loser. And the the best option in terms of the finance of the city was to literally do nothing and <laughs> let the state come in and destroy your city. And that was where we lost the least amount of money. That moment catalyzed a whole bunch of things in my mind that had been yeah. swirling around. Projects I've been working on that made no sense. We, we were in, this was in early 2000s. So we were in the craziness of the housing bubble and I was seeing that around me like this stuff is crazy like this doesn't make any sense but you know these people have a lot of money on the line like there's banks <laughs> financing this like they're not going to lose money like these guys know what they're doing <laughs> and when i started to pull it apart myself it became very apparent very quickly that like the emperor had no clothes mm. yeah and so i i tried to understand why like why why did this not turn out the way i thought it would turn out And I went back and started evaluating projects that I had worked on over the last decade and did the math on them. And I found that every single one of them over multiple life cycles was net negative. They all lost the community money.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, that was not a sole event in my life, but maybe like a three-year period of time of like frenetic trying to figure this out. And, And I started writing really to share these case studies and ask my colleagues, what have I screwed up here? Like, what, mm. what do I not, what am I missing? Because part of that industrial approach you mentioned is cities are set up like militaries. They're set up like assembly lines. People will say like, well, local government is inefficient. Local Mm. government is like bizarrely efficient, right? right? It's really efficient because we have people over here who just do streets. We have people over here who just do zoning. We have people over here who just do parks. The problem with cities is not that they're not efficient. It's that they're efficient at doing something really crappy that doesn't integrate with each other. The complex internal feedback loops are missing. Mm -hmm. And, And so it took me a long time, you know, as an engineer, who then got a planning degree. And these things, for most people, probably seem very similar. They're actually really, really different degrees. In in engineering school, we make fun of planners. And in planning school, we make fun of engineers. And the (laughs) jokes are all funny, right? Because these are two very different professions that don't communicate well, but yet seem like they're doing the same thing. Part of my early discernment was crossing these boundaries and trying to figure out why does this stuff work in one silo, work in another silo, but then not work in the real world.
2: So it sounds like the collision of being able to see both sides of that opened up some, some insight for you. We talk a lot about the collision between the world of the factory floor 100 years ago and and the ideology that shaped how to make sure a size nine shoe is always size nine with the you know knowledge economy and intractable problems we face today and how you need a completely different kind of complexity focused mindset to tackle those challenges and right now they're they're very much colliding in the workplace are there assumptions baked into yeah. the os of how we build and create towns and cities or or forms of like cognitive debt that are holding us back aside from the growth thing that we already talked about are there yeah. other Things that were attached to, like that siloing or things like that.
0: Yeah, it's a really, it, I feel like this is a deep, deep, deep question because you look at the shoe example, right? And if you ask people like how are shoes made today, we all have this expectations, understanding that there's an assembly line somewhere that ensures that size nine shoes are size nine shoes. And it's absurd to us to think that anyone but like the really, really, really rich people would get custom made shoes that right. would be built in a sense for their feet. Mm-hmm. Right. But if we go back before the days of manufacturing in this way, that's how all shoes were built, right? They were all, in a sense, custom made by a shoemaker yes. <laughs> who, who, would have, yeah, who would have you come in and would measure the exact size of your foot. And I don't I don't know how they did it. Like this is not my thing, but I know that it was a custom made individual thing that would take place. There was a process there that they would go through to, to do this for you. That is actually how cities were built. Cities were built, the way what we talk about it here is they were built by many hands, right? And it was not simply a carpenter that you would hire or a, a town architect. You know, Those are positions that we would have had. But it, there would have actually been a cultural understanding or an expectation that the guy who owned the bar and the saloon would have a certain approach that they would take to putting their place together. The, the person who owned the small little pop up shack that they lived in would situate it in a certain way that had been shown over time to be advantageous not only to them, but to the entire neighborhood. This deep local cultural knowledge and this kind of I don't want to use the word slow assembly because a lot of places were built very quickly using this, but this incremental assembly of a place where we essentially like we start with small buildings and then build up incrementally over time in these feedback loops that would interact with the underlying land values and the value of the place you were building. That required a lot of different layers of expertise with a lot of overlap between them. And I think the idea of a town architect is the way to think about this. Mm -hmm. Cities would not hire an engineer to come in and build their streets. They would not hire a planner to come in and zone their property. They would have someone who would seem like a town architect or a, a town planner. And they knew a little bit about all of this stuff. And their underlying task was not to grow or create or build It was, in a sense, to almost garden, like nurture. You were going to be measured on how great of a place you built. And that was going to be measured in many, many, many dimensions. But the primary dimension would be, is this a place people want to live? Is this going to endure over time? Is this going to be a memorable, great, beautiful space? And that's why you can go to a little podunk town like mine in the middle of nowhere and if you look at the buildings we build today when we're just finishing building a new high school it's a hideous ugly building. <laughs> you can go back to the courthouse or the school we built in the 1930s. The school we built 90 years ago is a work of art. Mm-hmm. Totally. And it's not because those people were rich. We are far richer than they were. It's because our delivery mechanism is resembles more an assembly line. Than a craftsman, it it resembles more like printing out a photocopy machine than someone drawing a portrait, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're going to build a great place, it's more like drawing a portrait than it is like uh, running your printer.
2: Well, and to your point, it's so time frame oriented. When you build things with an assembly line approach, you tend to build more disposable things. And so, if you look at like where does revitalization happen? Where do people go when the creative part of the community really comes alive? It's always old buildings, old structures, forgotten places. That's where the energy is because the bones are so good.
0: Can I and add so some really nuance funny. to that
2: though? Yeah, please.
0: Because I I think that, and maybe I'm just being a little too sensitive to it. I, I feel like there's a... <laughs> I mean, you're well, the I, expert. <laughs> no, but I feel like there's a there's a lot of people who work in planning and and city building who will hear what you just said and be like, damn right, like right on. And I don't (laughs) think, I don't think that's exactly correct. So let me put some nuance to it. We used to build cheap disposable throwaway buildings Mm. But we did it knowing they would be cheap, disposable, and throwaway. Right. It's almost like that first, you know, cartoon when you're doing like a great portrait, and they'll do a first cartoon. No one expects that. That's not like the final. That's like right. the, the first, wooden Main
2: Street. Exactly. In the
0: exactly. Exactly. Because there's a reaction to what we do today to say, well, we just need higher quality buildings. You know, we're, we're building such disposable. We are. We're building really disposable places. The sad thing is that they're not so disposable that we can walk away from them mm. but they're not so good that they'll actually <laughs> endure right. they're in they're this the worst middle hybrid. ground yes they're the worst they're the worst of all so we'll build a you know a crappy drive-through restaurant that is in a building that will last 15 to 20 years and it's just a junk building we'll put infrastructure in place that is expected to last 50 60 years that we will then you know at tremendous cost have to fix and maintain without the tax base there If we look back at what civilizations around the world did for a long time is they would start with just really disposable buildings. And then they would, over time, either add on to them, fix them up, or more likely, when more and more people moved to the place and the place got a lot more valuable, they would tear those down and build something really nice. And then a little bit further out on the edge of the neighborhood would be your throwaway buildings. A a, a constant process of evolution and rebirth. And I think you know when we don't think of cities in that way, when we treat them as if all we need is higher standards, all we need is you know, right. we're missing the front end of the chaos that creates beauty, and we can't get the beauty at the end we want. And I'm a beauty I'm equating with strength here, like the really great strong town that we want. When we won't get that without the chaos in the front end, and we fear that more than anything. <sighs>
1: Well, and what's, what's really interesting to me about what you're saying, and again, feels very parallel to the work we do is like, I think you're, you're hitting on a point in good design, which is what are you designing for? are you designing for something that is meant to last for 10 years and then be torn down and replaced by something once its proof of concept is there are you designing for something that's meant to be here when the aliens come and we're all dead as a representation of our culture like yes. what i'm taking from some of your description check is like there's not a lot of clarity and so in me- and, and and i feel like when there's not a lot of clarity at the beginning, then often we do get something mediocre, or we get the worst of both worlds. And you know, it, it's very much the same in organizational design. It's like if people aren't willing to make real trade-offs, we usually end up with something that's like pretty okay.
0: Yeah. Well, there's <laughs> this. There's a, a story that I see repeated over and over again of how people build web pages, right? And you sit down with a committee. And you all decide what you want on the webpage and everybody has to like, you know, get their little part in. And then when you launch the page, it's completely incoherent because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have a vision. It doesn't have like communicate anything. It communicates a little bit of what everybody wants. Right. And a great web page has like a goal and a purpose to it, right? It, it's, it's, you know, communicating a story right up front. And yes, it has navigation things that allows you to go deeper but it has a central coherent kind of sense to it. I think with our cities, what we've actually done is something similar, but yet I think also a little bit vacuous in a way. We feel like because we decorate our own homes, that somehow we're like the or the designer of space. Mm. And the reality is, most of the space we will interact with in our lives are outside of our homes. Mm -hmm. It's the street outside of our front door. It's the places where we go shop. It's all this. And those have all been turned over to a committee of people, each of who have their own, you know, I'm very worried about how the traffic flows. Okay, I'm very worried about the zoning classification and the, you know, the setbacks and the uh, the coverage limits. All right, I'm very worried about giving out the tax subsidy we've in a sense outsourced the building of our places to technical experts working in silos in ways that create the dysfunctional web page all around us mm-hmm. i think this is part of the disorientation of modern america is that we're not building human habitat we're not building places that are really designed you know, cities of old are you know, I'm not trying to nostalgize, they literally co evolved with us the way that a beehive has, like, has co evolved with bees. Mm-hmm. And if we went to a beehive and said, you know what? I got this really great idea. You can produce a hell of a lot more honey if we have a bee (laughs) cul-de-sac over here and a bee big box store over here, and we're going to take the queen and we're going to put her over here. And what you would wind up with is a bunch of like neurotic, disoriented bees. And maybe, sure, they could produce honey really, really well, but they would not be ultimately, they would not be who they were meant to be, which is bees, right? Mm -hmm. They would not ultimately become that thing which they were ascribed to be. I feel like we are a lot less human because we've made our human habitat a mechanical apparatus as opposed to something that is deeply us. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's something philosophical about that I recognize, and I'm not trying to impose a philosophy on people, but I do think that the mechanics of it is not working. And I think the response to like build a better mousetrap is wrong. I think the response should be a little more humble and natural and to say, how do we actually learn from the ecosystems of the past that generated the cities we adore?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. And I live in Durham, North Carolina, and the growth here has just been meteoric in the 10 years since we arrived. And I'm sure it's tale as old as time and probably very similar to the growth that a lot of smaller cities are experiencing in America right now. But what's really interesting when you wander around Durham, which when we got here was like a very special place is there are, (laughs) there are just giant apartment buildings being put up everywhere, mostly by developers who don't live in Durham. And we live downtown and what we all, what we routinely marvel at when we're wandering around is like, where are all these people going to like eat and where are they going to park? It's so disjointed to your point about siloing that you just, you have all of these independent operators who are all trying to do one thing that is the same thing. And then there's not really a nod to like what that, means in terms of an ecosystem that would thrive? Because it's like, there aren't going to be enough vegetables at the farmer's market for all of these people. So like, is anybody thinking about that right now? Or the fact that like, we don't have a grocery store downtown, but we're adding 30 residents a day to the city. It's like the beehive analogy is a good one because it feels like what we're really doing is like creating a whole bunch of little nooks for those bees to live in and no spaces for gathering or doing any kind of activities that are sustaining to a community.
0: Right. Let me though, and I think in the vein of what, of which you, I I think work, let me put a a fine point on that Mm. because one of the challenges we have now is that we work at scale. It's very hard to do things that are small Mm -hmm. and it's hard because of financing. It's hard because we've destroyed that ecosystem. So the small builders are all gone and they're, you know, working for the large groups it's easier in many ways to get twenty million dollars than it is to get twenty thousand dollars. If you're going to do a project, uh-huh. so you know there's a there's a scale problem. Cities treat the person who's coming in to do the the little building with the same intensity of review and and sometimes even more intensity of review and, and red tape than the person who's building the huge development out on the edge of town. So one of the the challenges of this system is that. It's supposed to solve itself the questions that, you you know, where are we going to get food? Where are these people going to eat? Where are cars going to park? It's not like there was someone in the past who solved all these problems, right? When you work incrementally, complex adaptive systems present opportunities and stresses that people can either move away from or embrace. And the system will evolve and adapt to deal with that. When you work at scale, what you have is, let's solve problem A, bam. That solution created problem B, C, and D. Okay, well, let's go solve problem B. Bam, now we've got problem E, F, and G. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we we go and and you don't have the chance for that nuanced mm-hmm. um, you know, feedback loop to allow the, the many hands to respond to and solve these problems. We talk about a human habitat as being something that has to be harmonized over time, but it's it's not harmonized by an omniscient being or a planner who believes themselves to be near an omniscient being, it's actually solved by many, many people doing many things in response to the stresses and opportunities they see around them. And, you know, the more our cities get away from being about that, I think the more they become fragile places, the the more they struggle.
2: Totally. Okay. So we are on a show called Brave New Work. And so I have to ask the obligatory question, which is, historically, how has work shaped our relationship to our cities and towns? And Mm. how have the cities and towns and the way they've developed shaped the way we think about and do work? Have Have you noticed anything about that?
0: There are many, many tomes about this exact topic, you know, because why, why do we have cities in the first place? Why did we right. leave being hunter gatherers and actually coalesce into some permanent settlement? And, you know, we did that because of work, right? Doing that allowed us to have intensive agriculture. It allowed us to specialize. You could have people who were just soldiers then or just priests or just, you know, whatever it was our society yeah. needed. And so the idea of a city is really the idea of a platform for humans to, to specialize in different labors in different, in different modes of work and modes of expression. And, you know, that's not to discount the laborers on the field and it doesn't discount the artists and, and everything else. I, I count that all as part of, of work, right? A calling. But cities allowed us to get beyond the, the hunter-gatherer existence, which had a lot of work to it, obviously, but then to go into something where work became more labor, right? Or more of a calling or more of a, a profession, that type of work. That's what cities have been, have always been. I think you see now this evolution where, you know, we're redefining or we're trying to struggle with what work actually is, you know, the, the whole work from home thing. We are a completely virtual organization. I mean, we were virtual before virtual was cool. So we've, we've been doing this for a decade now and I'd, I we have very low turnover here. And I feel like a part of it is because... It presents a different lifestyle that people really want and people are willing to uh, to endure other hardships because they like this lifestyle, they like this way of working. That kind of changes the professional class in our society in ways that our cities are going to have to adapt to. I think it also will change the non-professional class in society in ways that they're going to have to adapt to and, and may create a lot of tension. I feel like we are entering a phase where we're going to take the textbooks that are wrong mm. uh, about you know what what city building should be like and I think we're gonna th- like burn them I think we're going to throw them away and for good reason <laughs> because they're wrong I don't think we are going to unearth the textbooks from a hundred years ago and say you know let's copy these I mm-hmm. think we might read them and say there's a lot of really smart stuff here but what we're going to do now and what cities are going to become is something very different like very different than what they've been in the past and i quite frankly will tell you that i don't know what that looks like but i do know some of the constraints right and one of the constraints is that it's got to be able to maintain itself because if it don't nobody else is going to do it
1: yeah i mean my next question to you was really going to be what do you think given the pandemic's impact yeah. on work and co-location like what's your take on whether that trend over time helps our cities, hurts our cities? What are, you, what are you anticipating?
0: I think it's going to help in a tremendous way. Let me answer this very succinctly. I think that the avatar of dysfunction in the North American development pattern is the idea of commuter culture.
1: Mm. The idea that
0: someone, yeah, you you should live somewhere (laughs) that your job should be to get up in the morning and drive along with all these other people
2: on the same,
0: yeah, yeah, to to some distant place and then turn around and all of you empty out of and drive in the the opposite direction at the end of the day into your home pod unit that you would would occupy. I think that that is a, a deep dysfunction. And what work from home does is it completely upends that. Mm -hmm. And it it upends it by taking a lot of people off the roadways so that commute changes. So it might disperse development patterns more in some ways. But I think more than that, it actually creates demand for neighborhoods. Because if I'm working from home, I would love to be able to walk to a coffee shop up the street. I mean, that'd be amazing. You know, so there's all these things that go into that type of a work from home lifestyle that I think will redefine what we expect from the neighborhoods we live in. That there'll be more than just our refuge from commuter culture. There'll actually be homes and places and neighborhoods and, and hopefully complete communities.
1: That feels very hopeful and exciting and integrated.
2: <laughs> I am hopeful, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess hope is a pretty good place to to draw things to a close, isn't it? Especially these days when things are... So volatile and challenging. Chuck, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work in Strong Towns?
0: Yeah. Hope is always where we should end, right? (laughs) Strongtowns.org is our website. We publish three times a day, every weekday, and we've got three different podcast streams and You can kind of launch into everything on there. I'm, you know, on all the social media platforms, CL Marone is my handle everywhere. So you can find uh, my great grandfather's name was Ludwig. And so my middle name is Ludwig. So Charles Ludwig Marone, CL Marone everywhere. And, you know, we've got some stuff we've been working on on Substack. So if you just search strong towns there and like literally if you hang out in city building space in any period of time, you will wind up at some point intersecting with strong towns and just <laughs> dig deep there. Cause there's a lot of stuff.
1: Awesome, Chuck, this was so much fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show today.
0: Likewise, this was a great time. I'm, I'm it's always fun to be pushed out of your, you know, your easy comfort zone. So uh,
2: <laughs> thank you. A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and maybe their cities too. get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.